Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. This is the podcast where we take a close look at the national security challenges confronting Australia, the Indo-Pacific and the world in general. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by the Policy Forum in conjunction with the National Security College at the ANU, which is actually where I work in my day job. Uh, The National Security College is a collaboration between the ANU and the Australian government. It was put together in 2009 by the government in order to uh, help improve national security policy making at a whole of government level. If you're interested, you can find out more about that at nsc.anu.edu.au. Part of my role with the organisation is uh, what we call policy engagement, where um, subject matter experts are brought together with policy makers to work on particularly challenging national security policy issues. Um, This is both done at a public and a classified level. And we look a lot at... uh, futures and futures analysis. And this is this is the practice in the national security community where we try and look into the future and we try and identify emerging trends and also any particular shocks that are going to come down and challenge national security policy makers. And we try and create policy, better policy today in order to confront these challenges in the future. One of the things that I'm sure you can imagine we look at a lot in this practice is emerging technologies and how they will affect everything from criminal investigations to interstate relations and also how society functions in general. And in coming podcasts, we will be talking to Mr. Rob Hansen uh, from the 3A Institute and we're going to be looking at what is being called the fourth industrial revolution. We will look at the history of the industrial revolutions and how that's feeding into this new industrial revolution and what it means for the future of national security. One of the other issues that we are talking about a lot in the national security community is the future of the US alliance and partnership network, especially for Australia, what it means in the Indo-Pacific region. What we've seen recently is a G7 summit where there has been a failure to have a a final communique released signed by all of the partners where President Trump left quite a um, cynical, shall we say, summit with traditional allies and partners and went to Singapore and held a summit which looked highly successful from the President's point of view with a traditional opponent, that being North Korea. And we look at the optics of when we see the US pulling out of agreements such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the 
Paris Climate Treaty and a lot and putting pressure on its traditional allies, trying to match its security partnership with economic and trade partnerships and leveraging one for the other and the kind of messages this sends to the alliance networks when the president seems to act like he has more leverage with his partners so he treats them in a more demanding fashion than he does with his opponents such as Russia and North Korea where he seems to be willing to move close to them because he has less leverage with them. Of course, one of the outliers there is China, and we are seeing a more terse relationship emerge with China, between China and the US, on everything from trade issues to investment throughout the region under China's Belt and Road Initiative and how there is the potential for the Quad dialogue partnership, whatever you would like to call it, most often referred to as the Quad, which is India, the US, Australia and Japan, as a balance to China's emergence in the Indo-Pacific region. And we're seeing all all kinds of tensions across the region where uh, China is looking to wedge a lot of the partnerships that US has throughout the region and where the Trump administration's actions towards their alliances seem to be helping China towards achieving this goal. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about today with Dr. Zach Cooper from the American Enterprise Institute. He is a leading expert in US defense strategy in Asia and US-China strategic competition. Zach has previously worked for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as working in US administrations on combating terrorism and also defense policy. But before we get into it, a quick reminder, you can get in touch with us to tell us your thoughts on what we're discussing, to let us know what you would like us to discuss, or also put forward some of your opinions. And you can do that uh, by way of email at podcast at policyforum.net, on Twitter at apps policy forum, and on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society. We'd love to hear what you've got to say. But now, let's hear what Zach has to say. G'day, Zach. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, I'm very glad to be here. You've come at a pretty interesting time in international affairs and international security as well. We've just seen the G7 summit transition straight into the US-Korea summit in Singapore. Two very different experiences, especially from the US perspective. And I'm just wondering if you could give us your takeaway on how those two summits look next to each other. Well, I think there's no question that people were quite surprised to see the U.S. president criticizing U.S. allies so directly at the G7. Um, And then in Singapore to see, again, the U.S. president uh, being so uh, positive about a longstanding U.S. adversary. And and it's hard to draw any long-term conclusions, I think, from, you know, two days of meetings. But what I would say is, We do know that President Trump has a typical way that he likes to handle negotiations, right? He pushes where he thinks he has leverage. Mm -hmm. And I think some of what we saw at the G7 is that President Trump thinks he has leverage with the G7, in part because there are a number of countries that are highly dependent on the U.S. for their security. 
And so President Trump's view is that that provides the U.S. leverage that it has not used. Um, and I think, you know, in Singapore, you saw something slightly different, which is that President Trump thinks he has some leverage as a result of U.S. and other allied uh, sanctions on North Korea. And so I, I think that's sort of the string that you can draw between those two summits, right? That President Trump, when he thinks he has leverage, is going to push very hard. Um, and, you know, he, he's getting quite a reaction. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, when you look at his negotiating partners in both sets of negotiations, do you think that they pick up on that exact strategy or, or the, the, the insights that you're giving us now? You know, they, they may in, in some cases, but I, I think there's, there's obviously deep frustration with some elements of uh, Trump's negotiating style. I, you know, I think the Canadians in part are um, frustrated to see the back and forth about NAFTA which seems every few weeks, you know, there's uh, news that NAFTA's uh, a new agreement is going to be made. And then uh, the Trump administration will say, no, you know, this is the end. They're going to kill it. And I, I think there's no question that the Canadians, the Europeans are, are getting quite frustrated with, with this back and forth. But this is, this is how Trump operates, right? Actually, uh, if you look at what happened with the North Koreans, um, Trump canceled the summit and then they put it back on again. Uh, and why did he do that? Because he thought he could gain leverage by doing so. Um, now, we're used to American leaders treating allies and competitors or adversaries quite differently. Um, but that's just not how Trump operates. He's a business person. I think he views uh, negotiations as being you know, basically one of a kind. And he's going to operate in those negotiations uh, as a competitor, regardless of who's in the room. And do you, do you see, uh, say, trade negotiations and um, disagreement in the trade relationship transferring across into other areas of relationships, such as security alliances, partnerships, and, and strategies? I, I wish the answer was no, but I, I think inevitably the the only possible uh, implication of this discord is that it's going to break into other areas. Um, you know, if if NAFTA is actually ended. Uh, which I think is unlikely, but but certainly possible. That's certainly going to damage the U.S. security relationship with Canada. Um, same thing in Asia, right? If um, we've seen with the steel and aluminum tariffs some deep anger from some of our allies and partners um, about not getting waivers from those steel and aluminum tariffs, and it's going to affect uh, the security relationships between the U.S. and its allies. So why, why do you think Australia was seen differently to, say, the European allies when it came to the steel and aluminum, aluminum tariffs, as we say here? That's, a, that's right. Uh, well, I think the first reason is, um, you know, Donald Trump is very focused on trade deficits. Uh, It's probably not the metric that you or I would use about the health of a trading relationship, but that's that's what the administration is using. And uh, as as everyone knows now, you know, Australia has a trade deficit with the United States. Um, So actually, it's one of the few countries uh, where Donald Trump doesn't think uh, U.S. workers are getting cheated. And so I think that's one that's one important reason that Australia probably was left out of the steel and aluminum tariffs. Mm. And how, how do you see the relationship more so in the security realm between Australia and the U.S. transitioning from the Obama presidency to the Trump presidency? That's a tough question. You know, I would have said that um, – maybe a few months ago, that there was a lot of continuity in terms of Asia policy. Um, you know, the U.S. rebalance to Asia, uh, it, it 
had a different name and and some different components uh, from the Trump administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. But at their core, the logic was the same, right? An acknowledgement that Asia, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean were going to be more important to the United States increasingly over time and that the U.S. should invest more resources in the region as a result. I think what we're seeing now is that the Trump administration is really hampered by its lack of an economic strategy. And, you know, uh, we have to be clear that the Obama administration didn't get this right either. They did not put the time and effort necessary to get TPP through before the administration ended. And and my view is that that was a huge mistake. Um, However, uh, that's that's far better than the Trump administration's approach on economic issues, which at the moment was to cancel TPP and replace it with nothing um, and, and sort of in some senses seem to cede the field to the Chinese. Do, do you think? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Trump administration sees the nexus between the economic presence in the region and the security presence in the region and indeed the nexus between uh, economic strategy and grand strategy when you're talking about the TPP. They, they absolutely see the connection, but they thought TPP was bad for American workers. And so the, I remember having a conversation with a senior administration official uh, maybe about a year ago where they said, we, we want you to help us craft an economic strategy for the region. They were talking to a couple, a couple of outside experts. And the outside experts said, well, you had one. It was TPP. What's, you know, if you don't reenter TPP, it's going to be very hard to come up with another option. And at the time, I think the administration thought it could get bilateral deals with many of the countries in the region. Um, and I, I think now they're finally coming to understand that, frankly, that's just not in the interests of many of those countries and the discord on security issues, on economic issues is going to make those types of bilateral deals very difficult for domestic political reasons among our allies and partners. How, how do you see the the relationship in the Indo-Pacific region? So we've seen the uh, the relationship with European allies and partners start to deteriorate or, or um, experience some anxiety, to put it politely. Uh, how do we see that being reflected in the Indo-Pacific region, especially looking at Southeast Asia, which is a real... Um, cauldron of different countries, different strategies and different influences? Well, the, the U.S. has been struggling with Thailand for a bit, um, with the Philippines for, for much of the last few years under Duterte. Um, so, you know, those two U.S. alliances have really been tough. Where you see maybe even more discord than, than that is in Singapore, um, which is a very important U.S. partner. Um, but the Sings have been talking quite openly, you know, in, in media and press at senior levels about their deep concern about the direction that the United States is heading. Um, so I, I think what we're seeing in Southeast Asia is, is continuing concern similar to what we're seeing in Europe. Um, and, and, you know, maybe 
of a slightly different degree than what we're seeing in Northeast Asia, where folks are deeply concerned about the possibilities of uh, either a conflict on the Korean Peninsula or a deal that might overlook a couple of countries' interests. And how do you see this outcome influencing the way the region uh, reacts to China's growth? Well, I think the the biggest implication um, of, for example, the the Korea negotiations in Singapore, in my view, is that the administration is going to be very hard pressed to actually implement its Indo-Pacific strategy because it's going to still have some number of months or years left on negotiations with North Korea. And the administration has a number of solid people in place. But there aren't that many of them, and they don't have a lot of time. And so, Why are those holes not being filled out in the State Department? What, what's, what's dragging this backwards? Well, there are a couple of reasons. You know, one is that um, we have to be honest that a large number of American foreign policy experts said publicly that they wouldn't, under any circumstances, work for the current president of the United States. And so it's not entirely the fault of the president that he can't then uh, fill out these jobs. It's the fault and part of the foreign policy community uh, because they've said they wouldn't work for him. Uh, are there any people that are going back on that commitment? And if they did, do you think that the uh, administration would let them in? That's a big question. Uh, I don't think we know. So there are definitely people who want to go in and yeah. think it, it would be in the best interest of the country um, to let some people serve if they want to serve. I, I think the question for the president is a very difficult one, right, which is if if somebody personally signed a public letter trying to prevent him from getting elected and and criticizing him personally, is he willing to trust that that person is going to um, represent his government? We, we also see issues like, say, the, the appointment of Victor Char as, as the ambassador to, to Korea. As far as I'm aware, he didn't sign any Never Trump um, letter, but he still didn't get appointed because he wasn't exactly in line with uh, the president's policies. So is, is it just that people have committed not to work under this administration or is there a certain element of sensitivity in the administration that also stops him from killing, uh, filling key roles? Yeah, well, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, in, in Victor's case, um, you know, he obviously hadn't signed a letter. Um, there had been statements here and there when he'd been critical of the administration, um, which which I think was fair. You know, all administrations make mistakes, and the question is how many mistakes they make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and part of the challenge is all outside experts have a responsibility to speak openly about the issues as they see them. You would expect an administration would want someone who can give them their expertise and speak truth to power as well, rather than just be yes men. That's right. And, you know, one challenge they have is that now they're 18 months into an administration and um, there aren't that many people left who haven't said something negative about the administration at one point or another. And so um, they have jobs left to fill. They also are likely to have new jobs come open that they have to fill. And I, I think it's going to get harder and harder for them to fill many of these positions. I, I was in the last year of the George W. Bush White House. And, you know, when you're in the end of a White House, it's very difficult to fill these positions. And some people I used to work with say this feels a little bit like that time, right. uh, you know, the end of an administration when people don't want to take the risk of going in and, and they don't see what the possible gain would be for them. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for the administration going forward. Yeah. OK, so I'll ask you one last question because I am standing between you and your lunch. Uh, so I would like to ask if you had any particular advice 
for Australian policymakers on how to get the most out of the relationship between Australia and the US under this current administration, what would that advice be? Well, I'd say two things. First, um, and this is going to be slightly controversial, but I think it's important. Uh, that's right. Uh, so I, I wish that we as an alliance would stop talking about our past quite so much and start talking about our future. Um, and, and why do I say that? Um, anytime you listen to any official talk about the U.S. and Australia, the first thing they'll say is uh, that we fought together in every conflict for the last hundred years, um, hundred years of mateship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to tell you, I think that translates in a way in Washington that is not necessarily the intended way, which is that um, so few Americans spend large amounts of time focused on Australia that the message they hear is that Australians are going to be there with the United States no matter what. In and, any circumstances. And is that why they spend less time in Australia? Because we seem so dependable? I certainly think it is. You know, if you go to, the, go to Washington and try and find experts on other U.S. allies, Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, or sorry, Japan, Korea, you know, there are huge numbers of, of experts. Even if you look at the Philippines and Thailand, you still see significant numbers of experts. Australia, I'd be hard-pressed to name even five people who spend significant, amount, significant amounts of time focused on the U.S.-Australia alliance outside of government. Um, and, and one reason is that it's just seen as not very interesting. Actually, there, there are a lot of places that our interests diverge. Um, there are a lot of challenges for the alliance, but we paper them over too simply. And I think the, the risk for Australia is that Americans take away that they don't have to put time and effort into this alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a long-term risk. And so my view is that we should talk more openly about about those differences and focus on the future. And and I realize that that is a difficult conversation to have right now, uh, given that Donald Trump doesn't always see the value in alliances. But I think the way to do it, therefore, is to take some of these discussions out of what we call the track one uh, dialogues, so out of the government-to-government dialogues, and move them into either track two, that's you know basically non-government uh, experts, or into track 1.5, which is a mix of the two, um, and have these discussions in a much more direct and open way about where the alliance should be going, not being dragged so much back into where we have been. Excellent. Well, that's given us a lot to chew on. And right now, I'm going to let you go and chew on your lunch. So thanks very much for joining us, Zach Cooper. Perfect. Thanks so much, Chris. Well, there is plenty to think about there and no shortage of challenges for the Australian policy community. And same goes for the rest of the US alliance as well. Is the US alliance and partnership network going to come out of this administration with a new view on how to interact with the US and the region? Has the genie been let out of the bottle and is it ever going to go back again? Or do we just have to wait out this period of uncertainty because the institutions and the practices that we have are longer and more enduring than one disruptive administration? Pretty keen to hear what you have to say on the matter. Has Australia paid a too high a price for its alliance partnership with the US? Is Trump and his administration the change that 
the world needs to move into a new era where we are seeing emerging powers such as China, such as India, such as Indonesia, and an emerging, a re-emerging Russia. Pretty keen to hear what you've got to say on all of that, and you can do so by way of email. Hit us up at podcast at policyforum.net. Hit us up on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to us on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society. Pretty keen to hear what you've got to say about that podcast and also what you'd like to hear about in the future. And be sure not to miss Friday's Policy Forum podcast where the crew are going to be getting together a leading panel on Timor-Leste. I'm sure you're all quite aware that this is a big week in Timor politics. We had an election back in May And as of the recording of this podcast, we are waiting for a new Prime Minister to be announced. Is that going to happen this week? We'll also be looking at what the future is for Timor-Leste. Does it have a bright future as part of the Indo-Pacific or is it as the IMF and World Bank would have us think that it is heading towards a fiscal cliff? I know that I'll be paying close attention to that podcast, giving my connection to the region as one of the soldiers in the Interfet Forces in 1999. Can't wait to hear that, can't wait to hear from you, and can't wait to speak to you again in two weeks' time where we will be bringing together some of the world's leading experts on terrorism. We'll be looking at the resurgence of Al-Qaeda. We'll be looking at where to now in Syria. And we'll be looking at the impacts of the Marawi crisis in the Philippines and what that means for terrorism in the Indo-Pacific. Hope you can join us then. Thanks very much. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 